0: This is Our American Stories, and on our show, we often like to ask writers to read what they've written. And by the way, not just big writers and famous writers and writers for the Washington Post or the big newspapers of this country or the big magazines, just ordinary folks who post something. It doesn't, well, you don't have to be a writer to be a writer. And this writer, in particular, was the international admissions director for Dartmouth College. It can be hard to know which students to admit to a place like Dartmouth. It's really competitive to get in. But one year there was a student that stood out above the rest. Here is Rebecca Sabke reading her article for us.
1: Check this box if you're a good person. When I give college information sessions at high schools, I'm used to being swarmed by students. Usually, as soon as my lecture ends, they run up to me to hand me their resumes, fighting for my attention so that they could tell me about their internships or summer science programs. But last spring, after I spoke at a New Jersey public school, I ran into an entirely different kind of student. When the bell rang, I stuffed my leftover pamphlets into a bag and began to navigate the human tsunami that is a high school hallway at lunchtime. Just before I reached the parking lot, someone tapped me on the shoulder. Excuse me, ma'am, a student said, smiling through a set of braces. You dropped a granola bar on the floor of the cafeteria. I chased you down since I thought you'd want your snack. Before I could even thank him, he handed me the bar and dissolved into the sea of teenagers. Working in undergraduate admissions at Dartmouth College has introduced me to many talented young people. I used to be the Director of International Admissions, and I'm now working part-time after having a baby. Every year, I'd read over 2,000 college applications from students all over the world. The applicants are always intellectually curious and talented. They climb mountains, have extracurricular clubs, and develop new technologies. They're the next generation's leaders. The problem is that in a deluge of promising candidates, many remarkable students become indistinguishable from one another, at least on paper. It is incredibly difficult to choose whom to admit. Yet in the chaos of SAT scores, extracurriculars, and recommendations, one quality is always irresistible in a candidate, kindness. It's a trait that would be hard to pinpoint on applications even if colleges ask the right questions. Every so often though, it can't help but shine through. The most surprising indication of kindness I've ever come across in my admissions career came from a student who went to a large public school in New England. He was clearly bright, as evidenced by his class rank and teacher's praise. He had supportive recommendation from his college counselor and an impressive list of extracurricular. Even with these qualifications, he might not have stood out. But one letter of recommendation caught my eye. It was from a school custodian. Letters of recommendation are typically superfluous, written by people who the applicant thinks will impress a school. We regularly receive letters from former presidents, celebrities, trustee relatives, and Olympic athletes. But they generally fail to provide us with another angle on who the student is or could be as a member of our community. This letter was different. The custodian wrote that he was compelled to support the student's candidacy because of his thoughtfulness. This young man was the only person in the school who knew the names of every member of the janitorial staff. He turned off lights in empty rooms, consistently thanked the hallway monitor each morning, and tidied up after his peers, even if nobody was watching. This student, the custodian wrote, had a refreshing respect for every person at the school, regardless of position, popularity, or clout. Over 15 years and 30,000 applications in my admissions career, I had never seen a recommendation from a school custodian. It gave us a window onto a student's life in the moments when nothing counted. That student was admitted by unanimous vote of the admissions committee. There are so many talented applicants and precious few spots. We know how painful this must be for students. As someone who was rejected by the school where I ended up as a director of admissions, I know firsthand how devastating the words we regret to inform you can be. Until admissions committees figure out a way to effectively recognize the genuine but intangible personal qualities of applicants, we must rely on little things to make the difference. Sometimes an inappropriate email address is more telling than a personal essay. The way a student acts toward his parents on a campus tour can mean as much as a standardized test score. And, as I learned from that custodian, a sincere character evaluation from someone unexpected will mean more to us than any boilerplate recommendation from a former president or famous golfer. Next year, there might be a flood of custodian recommendations, thanks to this essay. But if it means students will start paying as much attention to the people who clean their classrooms as they do their principals and teachers, I'm happy to help start that trend. Colleges should foster the growth of individuals who show promise, not just in leadership and academics, but also in generosity of spirit. Since becoming a mom, I've also been looking at applications differently. I can't help anticipating my son's own dive into the college admissions frenzy 17 years from now. Whether or not he even decides to go to college when the time is right, I want him to resemble a person thoughtful enough to return a granola bar and gracious enough to respect every member in his community.
0: And thank you, Rebecca, for sharing that. And my goodness, I would have let the student in too. And by the way, we're going to be covering a story uh, that came out of the New York Times recently and it had to do with Harvard. This is one of the first years that they've decided to not let people in because of Facebook posts. So as you're talking to your kids, know that they're now looking at Facebook posts, how you conduct yourself, what you say, stupid stuff you do, lewd stuff, inappropriate stuff you do, and thank goodness, I wish I wish we'd all get on this. It's a big problem in the country, and uh, good for Harvard uh, for doing that. And thank you again uh, for sharing that story with us, Rebecca Sabke, uh, at Dartmouth College. And we also love to hear from you, uh, the members of our audience. And you're about to hear a story from one of our listeners in Chicago, Clay Stroop.
2: I was in the waiting room at the doctor just for a routine checkup. And next to me was an elderly woman with her daughter. The older woman evidently had some form of dementia, and her daughter was showing pictures and explaining with great patience that the two little girls in the photos are her great-granddaughters. After some explaining and finally understanding, the elderly woman proclaimed, You mean I'm a great-grandmother? That's wonderful! Judging by the look on the daughter's face, it was probably the 100th time she's explained it, but she still treated it like the first. I tell you, it took all I could to keep from getting up and hugging everyone and keeping it all together. Love is so powerful.
0: And it is. And we can always take those kind of short messages from you. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. And thank you, Clay, for sharing that. And again, thank you, Rebecca Sabke of Dartmouth College. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages. And we continue here with our american story since being released in 1983 francis ford coppola's film adaptation of s e hinton's coming-of-age novel the outsiders has found continued popularity and has achieved official cult status and now in what is surely one of the most interesting pop culture intersections of all time hip-hop artist danny boy o'connor from the rap group house of pain best known for their iconic 1992 anthem jump around Purchased the Tulsa, Oklahoma home where much of the Outsiders film was shot Here to tell the story is the man himself Here's Danny boy. My story really begins Los Angeles, California
2: 1983 when I went unknowingly to a movie that I had never heard of uh, Woodland Hills, California called the outsiders with my friend Steve Sikulski who um, just happened to read the book I believe I was in seventh grade, and uh, so he was a fan of the book and he wanted to see the movie. He said, Danny, you want to go see a movie with me? And I thought, sure. Steve Sikorski, a pretty cool junior high kid that I knew. So I figured, you know, if he likes it, it'll probably be something I like. But I had no idea what we were going to go see. I didn't have any frame of reference. And uh, on that f- full Saturday afternoon, we went in and saw the movie, and uh, I came out a changed man. And um, People ask me all the time, what was my fascination with the outsiders? And the movie kind of hit me at a time where I definitely felt out of place in uh, you know, the San Fernando Valley in the 80s, being a native New Yorker who um, was moved to California at the age of six and kind of always had like a, uh, a strong connection to the East Coast uh, so Southern California in the '80s looked a lot different than New York City did, and I don't know. I just always felt, you know, separate and apart from. And I and I got that from the movie as well. And I grew up. My father went to prison when I was two months old. Um, we moved in with my grandparents. My mother worked nights at the Chase Manhattan Bank, and so I never really had that foundation or that family, you know, uh, support or love. And you know, I carry that. I carry that with me, even though you know I've had a, a pretty extraordinary life. Um, you know th- that that foundation from the beginning has always felt unstable. And so, when I went to see the Outsiders, the first thing I noticed was that they were a fractured family, a broken family, and that um, despite that, that they stuck together. And um, had each other's backs and I felt at a 13 or 14 year olds mindset was that if I could just find that kind of friendship out in the in the world that maybe I wouldn't feel so bad about my home life and and, and the way we grew up and so that was the original hook for me for that movie that being said Matt Dillon was the coolest dude on the planet at that time Um, the cast was incredible whether it's Patrick Swayze, Ralph Macchio, Tom Cruise Darren Dalton, C. Thomas Al, uh Diane Lane, they were all, you know, this was the first time I was really seeing them. Actually, Leif Garrett was the big star in my mind, uh, looking back, because he was a 70s star, and so really was the only notable name that I knew prior to, to the Outsiders then, Matt Dillon. But that being said, the, you know the movie was 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 the coolest thing I'd ever seen, and it, and it stuck with me. I immediately went home and then dug out a, a denim jacket that I may have had from the seventies in New York, and uh, kind of uh, adapted that Dallas Winston Matt Dillon swagger for the next few years. But uh, as fate would have it, I didn't really have much of a game plan coming out of high school. I I dropped out in ninth grade. I hung out for the next three years at high school. Never really went in too much. Uh, Got in a little bit of trouble with the law. And during the time when most of my friends were graduating high school and heading off to college or or embarking on a career, I had no idea what I was going to do. And so I... uh, Connected, reconnected with a high school friend who had had a record out prior to uh, me and him reconnecting, and um, we started a band called House of Pain, and at the time, in hip-hop, there wasn't anything on the landscape like it. We were really, you know, uh, kind of the next wave of of hip-hop in the early 90s, but at that time, there wasn't any really, there wasn't really any hard white boys, and we were like Irish-American, tough white kids, and that was our shtick, and that our, our deal was is that, you know, we were the kind of like, you know, boom bap, punch you in your face type of hip hop uh, that was missing, you know, as, as, as the 80s turned into the 90s and, and grunge was a thing, hip hop needed to reinvent. So us and Cypress Hill were kind of like the next face of that in that moment. And so I was very successful with that and sold a few million records and traveled all over the world and made a million bucks. But... Um, and I like to say, what goes up must come down. And it wasn't only, you know, five years later that I was back to where I started even less because, uh, you know, doing music for a living, especially as a creative director and, and an artist, more than I am a musician, it kind of left me empty-handed when the career was done or the music career was done in that moment. And uh, I really had no other life skills. And I unfortunately turned to drugs to deal with that pain. So I spent the next, you know, five to six years high on methamphetamines and, and drinking around the clock, and it wasn't until about year 2000 that I got sober. I stayed sober for about three and a half years, and uh, you know, first year was good, second year I started getting complacent, and a little, my attitude started to come back, and my expectations started to come back, and my, my, You know, I started to think, well, this is cool, but I don't know how long I'll stay. By year three, I started convincing myself that I only had a drinking problem, and then drugs were clearly my problem, but if I just drank, how bad could that be? And uh, maybe I don't need this, this, this sobriety thing. And so... At around three and three and a half years, I decided to have a drink, and it was pretty much the worst decision I'd ever made. It took me a, two, one week to go back on drugs, and took me three years to get make it back to a, to a, to the twelve step program. And it wasn't until 2005 that I was able to get, uh, draw another sober breath. And in 2005 is when I began to put another group together called La Coca Nostra, which was kind of a super group. I took pieces of my old group and another group called Nonfiction and a few uh, undiscovered up-and-coming rappers, and we put a group together under that name La Coca Nostra. And it was on that fateful tour that brought me to Tulsa, Oklahoma, so when we got to Tulsa, Oklahoma, we were stuck here for three days. And when I say stuck, I mean stuck. That day was not really special. I didn't know what to do. We just kind of hung out in Tulsa, grabbed a few bites, and then called it a day. But day two of the three days that we were here, we began to get extremely bored. And so I called down to the concierge desk in the lobby and asked them to um, call us a cab. They laughed. Uh, there was no such thing as cabs or downtown Tulsa at the time. And it was it was pretty much... Pre Uber and Lyft and all of those rideshare things, so they were able to get they were able to wrangle us up a guy in a van that took about an hour and a half to get to the hotel. And then when he got there, we asked him, "Can he take us on a proper tour of Tulsa?" Which he proceeded to say yes, and then took us to the Woodland Hills Mall. And uh, I, to, I can assure you that didn't go over so well with a bunch of forty-year-olds <laughs> going to a to a what was at that point pretty, uh, you know. Was, the mall was kind of shuttered as well and so we went there uh, for about an hour and as we were heading back to downtown Tulsa it occurred to me Tulsa, 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 why does Tulsa sound familiar to me and it was at that moment I had the epiphany and I said excuse me driver and he said yes I said was the outsiders filmed here and he almost like locked up the brakes. He was like and turned around and he said, yes, absolutely. He says, why? Do you know it? I said, I not only know it, I love it. Do you know where any of the filming locations are? And he said, I do know where the driving is. So we proceeded to drop off the rest of the group. I grabbed my road manager and said, you're coming with me. I grabbed my laptop. And at the time, even in 2009, there wasn't much on the internet to go on. It's not like today. 2009, I looked up for locations for the outsiders and I found a Flickr account or two and I found a site called Tulsa TV Memories which had a few of the locations and the addresses were given up. The address I was most... Interested in was the Outsiders house, which was not given on that website, but they did tell us where the drive-in was, and it did tell me where the park in the movie was, the uh, Crutchfield neighborhood, and so we went to the drive-in, and I couldn't imagine that this thing was going to look anything like it did in the movie. But not only was it, uh, it felt like it, it, it hadn't changed a bit, and my mind just started to to just melt really because it it looked exactly like it would have in 1982 when they were filming and exactly like it did you know in the 60s when they were trying to describe it so it was pretty good stuff anyway so yeah we got that driver to take us around Tulsa we were able to find the drive-in we were able to find Crutchfield Park which was the park that Johnny stabs the Soch in and they have the confrontation with the Soch's in and then by finding the bark I was able to find the house and by finding the house, this is where the, the, the,
0: my life starts to take a different turn. And when we come back, we'll continue with the story of Danny Boy O'Connor from the rap group House of Pain, his journey back into his life, the movie The Outsiders filmed in this town, Tulsa, in Oklahoma. The rest of this story continues here on Our American Story.
3: For more, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for the podcast.
0: And we continue here with Our American Stories and the story of Danny Boy O'Connor. And my goodness. What a story it's been so far. No father, a hole he's trying to fill because of that. Sees this movie, sees this character in The Outsiders, played by Matt Dillon, of all people. And the next thing you know, a little bit later, he's in a big hit band, House of Pain, and then Drugs. And then one day there's a stop in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where The Outsiders was filmed. And the next thing you know, there he is in front of the house where that movie was filmed. Let's pick up where we last left off.
2: At the time it was for sale for $40,000. I uh, can assure you, you can't buy anything in Los Angeles, California with the word real attached to it for $40,000. Uh, I could not believe that this house, one, would be for sale, two, would be $40,000, and three, that, that nobody understood its true value as a, an American classic and a, and a really a, a sacred, hollow uh, grounds. Um, that being said, I knew that I was in no position to buy a house in Tulsa, Oklahoma, living in Beverly Hills, California, and that I should just kind of take a photo and, and, and soak it all in while I was here and then and keep, it, uh, keep moving. So that's exactly what I did. I took a photo out front. Uh, we played Kane's Ballroom the next night, and I also found out that there was a hole in the wall that uh, Sid Vicious had punched in uh, 1978 when the Sex Pistols played Caden's Ballroom, and I put both of those photos on Facebook, which was pretty much a new thing as well, and the response I got was incredible. And in particular, everybody was fascinated with the outsiders and that the house was not only one still on Earth, but they couldn't believe that it was still on the Warner Brothers lot, which I had to correct a lot of people that it is, no, it is not on the Warner Brothers lot in Burbank. It is actually still here in North Tulsa and I made sure I did not tell anybody that it was for sale because I didn't want anybody else buying it never again thinking that I would end up buying it five years later but that's exactly what happened so after finding the house we kind of I I realized that there's some there's, there's there's some real cool stuff across America and so it really started here for me but the I started to urban explore and I put a group together called the Delta Bravo urban exploration team and what that is is um it's a page I started on Facebook, and I put the Outsiders' house first, and I put a before and after photo. Told people the basics, you know, the Outsiders, 1982. Here's the house that the Kurdish brothers lived. Here's the address, 731 North St. Louis Avenue, and here's a before and after photo. And I found a lot of uh, support and made a lot of friends through this uh, web page that we started. And um, I found that there was a lot of like-minded people. Uh, all over the world, but here in particular in, in the U.S., that were at a certain age where they were like really looking back fondly on, on all of the pop culture locations and, and and all of our collective history, which is really pop history. I mean, I was, if, if I'm honest, I was raised by a television set and the radio. I mean, this is where I got most of uh, the stuff I was after, you know, as a kid. This is where all my information came from. So in 2009, I used the tour bus as my personal, like, pop culture location vehicle. And I figured if I'm going to be on this tour bus and everybody else is gonna be you know doing their thing I'm gonna get highly caffeinated walk around every city we go to and I'm gonna look for uh, culturally relevant um, undiscovered locations and so that was the birth of the Delta Bravo urban exploration team I, again it just was like a cool hobby that I could do in my sobriety that really cost me nothing and it was a, I was also able to kind of like see all the, the the undiscovered locations that I had always wanted to see, like where Mary Tyler Moore's house was in Minneapolis, where the son of Sam was arrested in Brooklyn, and, and, and stuff like this. Um, and because of the success of that on, on the internet, uh, I, I got so much, you know, um, so many accolades and met so many cool people, We we started to do it like... Uh, pretty we took it pretty serious for a while we were actually getting courted by a lot of companies in Hollywood they were trying to turn it into a television show it never really kind of worked out uh, television wise but the group kept growing and growing so we started to go on group trips and uh, meanwhile I was still touring a lot so I was going back and forth across the US and year after year a minimum of twice a year but uh, sometimes three or four times a year I would come back whether on purpose or not, to Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I'd always make a, a mission or pilgrimage to see the Outsiders House, and, and mostly some of the other locations as well, and what I started to notice is that year after year this house was starting to deteriorate, and that the neighborhood was starting to fall apart, and that the Habitat for Humanity was coming through here, and they were clearing out a lot of these, these streets and, and, and these houses, building new houses. Um, I always like to qualify that I am a fan of the Habitat for Humanities and what they do uh in particular making low income houses you know affordable to people who wouldn't be able to afford those um and that being said I was worried that nobody recognized this house for really what it was which was an American classic and a and a cinematic masterpiece uh you know part of uh, of a bigger you know picture and so at year 5 is when I got here uh, and started to get worried. I started to think, well, what if they tear this house down, I and mean, what if nobody recognizes that what 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 this thing really represents and what it what it is, and. It's on the fifth year when I started to, to ask myself the question, well, why don't you do something about it? And um, really, I have no expertise on any of this stuff. I was, just a, I was just a fan who couldn't imagine the world without The Outsider's House. There was really never a plan or a blueprint or any of that. But what I did was meet a couple people here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. They not only saw the vision that I had, that this should be some kind of like, one, it shouldn't, it, it shouldn't ever be torn down. Two maybe it could be restored and it could be somebody's house and we could put a little display or some homage to the to the movie that was filmed here in one of the rooms and the idea just kept getting bigger and bigger but what it what ends up happening is we end up getting the the contact information for the owner who her husband bought the house uh, five years before I got here and they basically did a quick fluff and buff in hopes to use it as a rental property unfortunately her husband died he gives it to her in the will, and her and her sister moved to Florida because they were not native to Tulsa, and they have had no reason to stay here once her husband was gone. I guess they were kind of like absentee landlords. I mean, they were they were trying their best to collect the rent, but the tenants weren't paying. They were eight months behind in their rent. The house was in terrible condition, and so by the time I found her in 2009, she was ready to sell. Uh, We called her. She told us she wouldn't take a penny less than $20,000. My buddy made the call, so he said he wouldn't give her a penny more than $15,000, to which she accepted. And at that point, I thought, man, we robbed this lady. I mean, we bought an American treasure for $15,000. I mean, where on earth can you buy a house for $15,000, much less the house from the movie The Outsiders, so, yeah, so I buy the house for $15,000. I buy it sight unseen. I had never been in the house. I had peeked in it a few times. I had been on the outside of the outsider's house a few times, but never really knowing the true condition of the house and also never understanding. I, I'm I, When it comes to you know, remodeling homes or anything that has anything to do with that, I have no idea what I'm doing. So I, this is not something that I would have been like predisposed to do or something that would have been a likely... Thing for me to do, I was just a passionate fan who couldn't imagine if they tore this house down um, what the world would, would be like without it. And so I ended up giving the tenants little by little over a month to move them out. Because uh, again, they were eight months behind in rent and it cost me $4,800 to get them out. When I finally drove here a month later from California to see my new house, I ended up breaking in a back window because they did not leave me keys. And I realized that this was the worst mistake I had ever made.
0: And you just heard it from him, the biggest mistake he'd ever made, was it? Well, we're going to find out the rest of the story in a minute. But what a story it's been so far. He was raised on TV and a tour bus. And for $15,000, he thought he just bought a piece of the American dream and certainly an American treasure. What happens next? Well, we've all gone down this road before in our lives, folks. Something we thought was an opportunity, then we thought was a big mistake. And a little bit further down the road, well, who knows what, but some good came of that big mistake. Danny Boy O'Connor's story continues here on Our American Stories.
1: For more, go to ouramericanetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter.
0: we continue with our American stories and Danny Boy O'Connor's story. He had just laid down 15 grand on a house in Tulsa, Oklahoma. A house with the outsiders. His favorite film, the film that had more influence on his life than any other. And we all have that film or that book or that song. Let's return to Danny Boy's story in Tulsa. Clearly the owner knew a lot better than I did the
2: condition of the house. If there was any worry of me underpaying for this house. It was quickly erased when I got in here. I mean this house was in shambles. The only thing this house needed was a brand new house and uh, it was in terrible condition. And then the fact was that it it didn't look like it had been cleaned up in the last hundred years. They were hoarding in here and it was in terrible condition and I panicked. And at that point I thought, well, Basically, I just flushed $20,000 of my $28,000 life savings down the drain. I had no work in the foreseeable future for me. We weren't touring at that time, and I basically just put eighty percent of whatever cash I had left on earth into this house which was a complete tear down and so my next thought was like look at I'm gonna ask for help and uh, I often say you know I'm a six-foot-six alpha male and it's hard to ask for help when people assume that you should be able to do this type of work but the truth is I don't know how to do this type of work and it was very it was very humbling, and I, and, and I had to really humble myself to, to, to admit that I didn't know what I was doing, and I was in over my head, and that perhaps if there were a few other Outsiders fans on Earth like me, uh, maybe they could help me find a way to turn this into a, to a museum, and that was my thing. I thought, well, I can't ask for help, and then this is my, my fort or my new home in Tulsa, that didn't make any sense to me, why people would, would, would be interested, because I wouldn't be interested in that. But I would be interested if somebody was doing a museum to help pitch in whether that was a gift in kind or some cash or whatever. And so we put a GoFundMe together, and we started to raise a little money, and immediately the press got a hold of the story. And if I thought I was one of few Outsiders fans on this planet... It didn't take long for me to figure out that I was uh, clearly wrong on that. I mean, immediately the city council showed up to the house. The mayor of Tulsa showed up to the house. The press came out of the woodworks, and it just kept growing and growing and growing. And before long, you know here we were on our way to turning this thing into a museum now at first i want to tell you it was going to be a movie museum because i had read the book but it was only a few years prior that i read the book but this book again is it is an american classic it was written by a 15 year old girl here in tulsa oklahoma by the name of susan eloise hinton the book is 51 years old now it has never been out of print at the time when uh, Susie got her publishing deal they agreed with the publishers that it'd be best if nobody understood that she was a, a female so they called her S.C. Hinton to be ambiguous with that she was failing out of English when she wrote it and got a D plus in creative writing and I think that's incredible because the hope is there um, you know for everybody uh, that great things can happen despite maybe a few bad marks in a few, in, in, in a, in a few um, classes and Really, the book is what brings most people to the house. Uh, people love the movie, without a doubt, and that movie, you know, basically launched the Brat Pack, which is all the actors we've mentioned before. You know, Tom Cruise, Patrick Swayze, Matt Dillon, Ralph Macchio, C. Thomas Howell, Diane Lane. Directed by Francis Ford Coppola, uh, the book seems to have way more of a, a draw, or is equal if not bigger draw than 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 the movie and that was learning experience for me as well because on an average day people come by this house all the time to um to stop by and it's usually you know uh a 50-year-old, a 40-year-old, two 17-year-olds, and a 12-year-old, and it's usually somebody's going to seventh grade, and it's required reading. Their older brother and sister read it five years ago when they were in seventh grade. Uh, Their parents remember reading it when they got to junior high, and they also were there to see the movie or saw it on HBO when they were kids, and it's really the whole family tree that comes to enjoy this whole story from the book to the movie and now i'm told it's being turned into a a broadway musical which is also incredible so so much stuff has, has transpired since that first day of me buying the house but what ended up happening is that the whole community kind of just puts this thing on their back and runs with it. Um plumbers came by and helped me plumb, roofers roofed, gardeners gardened, um tile layers tiled and contractors contracted and everybody just started to do what they could do. And it looked like, you know, people would say, "Hey, listen, on Sunday after my daughter's soccer practice, I can come by and work for 2 hours for free if you don't mind." And I the like, yeah, it would be fantastic. And so really this is a communal project. you know I get thanked everywhere I go around town and around Oklahoma for uh, you know saving the outsider's house, but I feel disingenuous by accepting that praise and I always tell them and I think they think I'm being you know humble or being you know coy or whatever, but the truth is is that this this thing happens because everybody pitched in um, and helped and it was usually the people with the least to give given the most um, that being said we we our number one supporter. Um, Cashwise is the author Essie Hinton herself, um, and Jack White also, you know, came by and uh, told me he loved the, what we were doing and and loved the book, loves the movie, and loves Tulsa, and and he got us over the hump. We were stuck at forty five thousand dollars on our GoFundMe, and we were looking for seventy five thousand, and he said, "I want to give you thirty thousand dollars from last night's show and get you over the hump," which he did that and um, it changed everything. I mean, we were kind of we were. What I thought would take six to eight months to complete took us three years. Um, two months ago, we finally were able to cut the ribbon. In between those last three years, we've done three events to support the house. We're both Ralph Macho, C. Thomas Howell, Darren Dalton. All of them in the movie had come back one or two to three different times for three different events to support this. Um, and really what I found out is this thing has become like a community center. Um, and had a really good trickle-down effect. I mean, when I got here, the lawn was to my waist, uh, and trash all over the place. We cut the lawn, got it down to size, we removed all the debris, we cut down trees that had, you know, fallen in upon themselves, and. We basically cleaned this house up so nice that everybody else in the neighborhood started to get the drift and they started to clean their stuff up. And before long, it, it changed the face of the neighborhood as well. And so if you come here in North Tulsa, on the corner of Independent and St. Louis, you'll, you'll definitely uh, you'll see what I'm talking about. And it's, 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 it's a sight to behold. There's a lot of, uh, there's just so many different layers to this thing. I would have been bored a long time ago if it was just a house from a movie. And as much as I love the film, Um, And love the book There's so much more greater at work here Um, I love Tulsa, Oklahoma I love uh, That a 15 year old girl wrote this While she was failing out of English And got a D plus in creative writing Was really going through a rough patch And she wrote this masterpiece And this masterpiece is different than all others Because it literally Is the book that starts the young adult category It was the first time that a young adult Ever wrote about being a young adult For young adults And if I'm not mistaken, that is the most successful category of books now on the market. Uh, for me, it's changed my life. I, I spent the first, let's call it, first 45 years of my life trying to build my career and, and, and promote my brand and, and stay relevant in that way. And finally, it was a breath of fresh air to discover that this thing could use a, a somebody to champion it. And instead of championing you know the the fragments of uh, of my shattered career or whatever you know uh, in in music that I was able to parlay all that experience that I thought was like of no use in the end and kind of pivot out and put it into susie's legacy and in in particular saving the outsider's house and and by by taking this on um it's opened my world to a whole bunch of other areas um we're looking to do weddings here we, we bring school children through on the uh, monday through friday so schools will read this at seventh grade they will go to the circle cinema which was also uh in a, a historic movie theater here that's 91 years old on the original route 66 and it was also featured in the movie they show that movie to those seventh graders and then the seventh graders come here dressed as greasers and soasts and they get to experience the the, the the house the museum and i know that they get truly inspired because they don't have a lot of role models to look at and to say hey this person is from my school or my city or my town and they have became successful and they, they they're legends and make no mistake sc hinton is their that's their legend that's their that their mentor they look and they go this this little girl did this here and it gives them hope and so For me, I found a whole new purpose here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, I live here now full-time. I moved from Beverly Hills, and I've been here for two years, and it only gets better for me. This town has changed uh, tremendously in the last 10 years for the better. Um, There's a ton of cool things here between Route 66 and Cain's Ballroom and the Drillers Baseball Stadium where the Dodgers double-A team plays. Uh, There's good food, good people, and and affordable gas. What more can you want? And you can buy a beautiful home here for $150,000, which, tell me where else you can do that. So, I'm Danny O'Connor. I'm the owner of the Outsider's House, but I am the executive director of the Outsider's House Museum.
0: And, uh, yeah, this is my American story. And what a story. Thanks to Danny Boyle O'Connor for telling it. And thanks to Greg Hengler for putting this together. By the way, make sure to go to TheOutsidersHouse.com to learn more. Take a visit if you're driving across the Midwest. Stop in Tulsa. And my goodness, he took a stop in Tulsa, all right. And he called it his home. This New York boy, fatherless, chases his dream, ends up in L.A. L.A. is not his home. Pops down $15,000. He thought it was a big mistake, and of course... It became the most purposeful thing he ever did in his life. And he found meaning there, and found, well, a family there. And as he put it, what a great place to go. Good food, good people, and affordable gas. Danny Boy O'Connor's story, the story of so many things in this country. But in the end, a story of finding home. This is How Americans story.
3: For more... Go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for the podcast.
0: This is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories and we love bringing you stories from our very best writers and Jonathan Rausch is an award-winning author with seven books and many more magazine credits to his name but the book we're going to talk about today is personal. It's called The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After 50 and it's Jonathan's detective story about why he and so many of us fall into a funk right when we appear to have it all. And Jonathan, you start your book with the story of a man named Carl. Tell us about him.
3: Carl is a guy in his 40s. He's objectively super successful in life. He's got a good marriage. He's got kids that are happy. He recently switched to the job kind of thing he's always wanted to do, and yet he feels feels strangely unfulfilled he comes home at night thinking what's the matter with my life why am i so discontent he started to feel like there's something wrong with him and he he told me he was actually starting to feel a little bit scared he wasn't even telling his wife about it because he didn't want her to get upset so he was holding it all in and i heard this and when i was 54 about 10 years older And I thought, that is my life. That is exactly what I went through.
0: You know, you wrote that, quote, it feels kind of conceited to bring it up to my friends. They just kind of look at me and say, geez, you got it all. So there's sort of a a shame, oddly enough, in feeling this feeling of, if not depression, uh, unease, fear, at a time when most people would look at you and say, you've got it all. What do you got to complain about?
3: Well, that's right. His subjective well-being, how good he feels about his life and his objective well-being, the circumstances of his life have completely parted ways. And and that, too, is what happened with me. I knew I was in trouble when I was 45. I'm a journalist, magazine writer, and I won a national magazine award, which is the equivalent of the Pulitzer Prize for the magazine business. It just doesn't get any better. And that made me feel fulfilled for like 10 days. And then these creeping ideations of, you know, I'm wasting my life. I should quit everything and go somewhere else. They, they came back. And that's when I knew what was going on was strange and irrational. I felt just the way Pearl did. I haven't earned these shows I should be grateful. Why am I not grateful? Yep.
0: Yeah, why am I not grateful? Let's talk about Dominic. Much of his identity was wrapped up in his work and things hadn't turned out like he expected and yet he characterized the stage of his life as appreciative. So talk about him in contrast to Carl.
3: Dominic is a little older than Carl, about five years when I spoke to them. They're actually very similar demographically. They're a closely matched pair. They even travel in similar social circles. Dominic has been where Carl was a few years ago. He felt that same dissatisfaction and restlessness and unease and sense that he was wasting his life. But by his early 50s, he senses he's begun to kind of turn around. He's, he's feeling like his expectations are a little bit lower, and he's somehow feeling more appreciative of what he's got on a day-to-day basis, just you know, being with his daughter, his family. And I, at the start of my book, I juxtaposed these two because, in many ways, the big difference between them is actually their age. Carl is five years younger. He's at a different point in the happiness curve.
0: Let's talk about Thomas Cole and his series of four paintings, The Voyage of Life. This is a 19th century painter who I think had stumbled upon these insights in his art long before social psychologists And come to the same conclusions we'll get to in a bit. Talk about Thomas Cole.
3: I beheld them for the first time when I was 20 years old. And they just just stopped me short. Partly because of their beauty, but partly because of the story they tell. So Cole is a landscape artist. And he sets out on a commission to do a series of paintings depicting the voyage of life, starting with childhood. And what they show is a baby, then the same young man, then middle-aged, then old age, in a boat on a river. In the front of the boat, on the prow, is an hourglass. Behind the boat is a guardian angel, in most of the paintings, out of sight of the young man in the boat. The first one shows the baby emerging from the womb into a kind of Garden of Eden. The second one shows a young man exactly the same age I was when I first saw it, about the age of 20. And he's reaching for a castle in the sky. And those are his ambitions for life, not just his ambitions for accomplishing things, but his ambitions for happiness, because he thinks if he accomplishes the things he wants to do, that that's going to be fulfilling. Well, surprise, the next painting is midlife. Rapids, dark clouds, craggy rocks, Um, the tiller is knocked off the boat, he's looking overhead and and praying for deliverance, but blocking his view of the heavens are dark clouds and and demons. And that's Thomas Cole's portrayal of where Carl is at. What's so interesting about these is that there are no people, buildings, cities, society. Nothing like that. It's a portrayal of our psychological journey years before there even was such a thing as psychologically. Cole is saying, this is how it's going to feel to be you at these different portions of your life. And it turns out he's exactly right.
0: You know, it's interesting when you're going through that. And I, I hadn't seen these paintings in at least 15 years back when I lived in D.C., And they startled me. But what I did not see in that final painting, because I had my own biases about old age, is I saw all the darkness in that fourth painting and not the light. And that was my own bias. And we're going to get to that later as well. But when you were younger, did you see the same thing? Do we see what we want to see or see what our experience allows us to see, Jonathan?
3: I saw myself exactly in youth because I was 19 and expected great things for myself. I just didn't know what they were going to be. But I thought, you know, I knew I I had an inkling I wanted to be a writer. And I thought if I could even just ever get one article published in a major magazine, just one, I'd feel fulfilled for the entire rest of my life. So that was completely accurate. It painted my life. And I also remember thinking, well, that middle-aged one, that's not going to be me. I mean, I knew it was something like that for my father, but I thought, well, you know, any good thing that happens to me, I'll be grateful for and satisfied. So in the future painting, the future me, in middle age, the young me was not ready to see that.
0: And when we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Jonathan Rausch, author of The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After 50. This is our American Story. This is Our American Stories, and we're back with author Jonathan Rauch, who's written The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After 50. And we were just talking about how so many of us experience more happiness and satisfaction in our youth and then later in our lives than during midlife, something that even the great 19th century painter Thomas Cole showed in his work. By the way, the National Gallery is in Washington, D.C. His work is there. Worth a trip just to see it. It's so staggering and so beautiful. The Adventures of Life. Jonathan, you were motivated to look into this topic of happiness and ultimately write this book because of your own life. It's odd to be in your mid-40s having achieved all of your important life goals, but feeling down. Talk about your own journey, starting with this quote from your book, quote, I was in the closet with my unhappiness.
3: Well, I was, and Carl is. I think Carl said that he only ever told one other person how he was feeling, and it wasn't his wife. I talked to another guy who was going through the same thing, and he said that he had tried telling a friend or two, and, and then he stopped doing that because one of them gossiped about it, and he he didn't want to be a source of actual ridicule, you know, oh... Lee's going through his midlife crisis. Hey, Lee, when are you going to buy the sports car? Ha, ha, ha. Right. So the happiness curve is totally normal, natural, and healthy. It's very unpleasant if you're going through it, but it has a payoff, which we should talk about, which is what happens in our 50s, 60s, and beyond. It's reorienting us to be less focused on ambition and achievement as a source of our personal well being and more focused on connection and community, which comes later in life and is a much more fulfilling source of happiness. But in between there's this nasty transition when we're disappointed in the happiness achievement has brought us and the new values haven't really arrived yet. That's a natural process, right? It's a little bit like adolescence. It's just something many people go through. I mean a lot of people have a hard time in adolescence. So, you know, fine, we help them get through it. But we make it much worse we do that in a few ways and we should talk about all of them but one of them is what you just mentioned we make fun of this period in life and we make people feel like middle age is supposed to be the peak of life you know they're masters of the universe they're taking care of their kids and their parents and they've got the mortgage and they've got the hope high profile career and they're good at everything They're superman and super women so if people are feeling bad in this portion of life and it does turn out to be a very vulnerable portion of life, well, they're bottling it up. They're feeling like I can't tell anyone about this. And you know, I'm a gay man and I lived through life in the closet. And very quickly when I started hearing people's stories, I realized this is the closet all over again. I mean, it's never going to be super easy to be gay, But having to bottle it all up, be ashamed of it, not tell anyone, go on about your life without opening up about the true you, that makes it much worse. And that's what's going on with Carl.
0: Indeed. And I would say this about so many things in life. The more we open up and share, the more we can know that other people in the world are going through the same thing, Jonathan. Let's talk about happiness and income. Quote, all the evidence says that on average, people are no happier today than people were 50 years ago, writes Richard Laird, a prominent British economist. Yet, at the same time, average incomes doubled. This paradox is equally true for the U.S., Britain, and Japan. So economic well-being doesn't make a person happier or less happy, Jonathan?
3: Well, it's a bit more complicated than that because poverty is immiserating. So getting out of poverty is really important. But beyond a certain point, their diminishing returns of additional income because it turns out that once you're beyond the poverty level, you're, you're living pretty well. It's just not actually that helpful to have your fourth or fifth, you know, million dollar. In fact, it can be counterproductive because of what psychologists call the hedonic treadmill, which is when you're in a race for money or status, you're always comparing yourself above you to the people who are higher than you and you're trying to catch up. But there's always going to be someone higher than you. So you become like a gerbil on one of those little running running loop cycle things. The more you try to get status, the more you feel like you're not getting there. So beyond a certain point, investing and making more money or having more status turns out not to be a reliable way to increase your well-being and sometimes can make it worse.
0: Here's the most fundamental finding of happiness economics you wrote. The factors that most determine our happiness are social and not material. Talk about that.
3: This is, this is the core finding of research in multiple disciplines now, economics, psychology, neuroscience. Human beings are tribal animals, we're social animals, we're wired to be in groups. And the main determinant of our happiness is having trusting, loving relationships, supportive relationships, reliable relationships with the people around us. Investing in people and connections and community in a supportive way, that is the opposite of the hedonic treadmill. It turns out that those, that's like putting happiness in the bank. It not only makes you more satisfied with your life in the short term, it's cumulative. It's it's not a situation where the goalposts move. Unfortunately, when we're young, it's hard to focus on those things because we're wired to be ambitious when we're young. Evolution wants us to go out and, you know, really impress, impress our fellow tribes people and get lots of status and lots of social connections and, you know, a fat Rolodex and, us lots of mating opportunities. So that means early in life, it's harder to live according to this, what we now know about happiness. Doesn't mean we shouldn't try though.
0: Indeed. Let's talk about Aristotle and the virtues he wrote about centuries ago relating to life. It turns out after all these centuries, he was on the mark about a lot of things. Human beings are still in the end, Jonathan, human beings.
3: Yeah, it's funny. I wonder about Aristotle. Was he a creature from outer space, because he got so much right, and it took really modern science to understand how right he was. Aristotle is a Greek philosopher, of course, um, fifth century B.C., and he makes this important distinction that real happiness is not just transitory cheerfulness. It's a sense of fulfillment with your life, a sense of satisfaction with your life. And that, he says, comes not from pleasure, but from inculcating in yourself a virtuous life, which basically means doing things that are good for yourself and other people and making that a habit. So you don't even have to think about it that much. And all of this turns out to be exactly true, so much so that, you know, I kind of wonder, how did he know that? There's a big basic distinction between... Happiness in the sense of emotional, feeling good right now. And happiness in the sense of well-being, feeling satisfaction with your life as a whole. Everything we're talking about in this conversation is about the latter. Indeed. It's about that sense of well-being, which is much more important for life satisfaction overall um, than just your mood.
0: You know, I don't think people can hear that often enough. The culture, Jonathan, sends so many messages directly to the contrary. Buy this, you'll be happier. Go here, you'll be happier. Travel here, you'll be happier. Love all these different people as opposed to one person, and you'll be happier. In the age of Tinder and Instagram, this is very counterintuitive.
3: Yeah, that's the thing about Aristotle. He's been rediscovered by modern science, as has wisdom, which is another piece of Aristotle which we should come back to. But we have, as a culture, spent the last multiple decades moving in the opposite direction. The idea behind Facebook, you know, was supposed to be we'll connect the world and everyone will be happier because we'll have a zillion connections instead of just, you know, these 30 or, or so key people in our lives that we mostly talk to face-to-face. Well, it turns out the opposite is true. It turns out what we're doing on Facebook is not connecting, it's displaying, as psychologists put it, um, which means showing off our carefully curated lifestyle homepages in which we're always happy and we're always on vacation and and showing, you know, pictures of big smiley pictures, or we're displaying our animosity to the other side, to groups that we hate, which is a way of ingratiating ourselves with our own group. So that means, you know, we're on Twitter slamming people and trolling. So it turns out once again that, that the old wisdom about this is right. There's no substitute for close connections in person, face-to-face with real people.
0: And when we come back, we're to continue this terrific conversation with Jonathan Rauch, author of The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After 50. Go to Amazon and buy this book. Again, it's The Happiness Curve. And I'll tell you, you'll feel happier about a lot of things and better. If you're going through some things, you're going to get through those things, more than likely. And these are just, well, it's just a part of life and living. These stages of life. The Happiness Curve. Jonathan Rauch. We continue our conversation after these messages here on Our American Stories. <laughs> ¶¶ This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we return with author Jonathan Rausch and his book, The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After 50. Go to Amazon and buy this book. You won't put it down. You'll learn so much. Give it to a friend, too, especially if they're in their mid-30s, early 40s. Heck, give it to people in their 20s, too. They can at least get a sense of what's coming in life. Then they can get through life in a better way, In a in a... In a Well, in a more relaxed way. Let's talk about the curve part of your life, Jonathan. We live in a society that celebrates and glamorizes youth, but on average, most people reach their highest levels of life satisfaction in their later years, not in childhood, not in midlife, when many of us are at our professional peak. This is a fairly new discovery. Talk about it.
3: Well, yeah, it goes back about 20, 25 years. The biggest The strangest thing I learned in writing The Happiness Curve is that midlife crisis is very often literally about nothing, and we should come back to that, because that's that throws off a lot of people. But the most surprising thing I learned is what you just said, that other things being equal, of course, individual mileage will vary, but other things being equal, as we get older, our life satisfaction increases right through old age. We're actually programmed by evolution as we move out of our fifties and beyond to invest more in those key relationships with other human beings, to care more about community and less about personal advancement. And that plus changes in the brain, which actually make us more positive about life as we get old, actually increases contentment. Even in many cases, if we're ailing and sick, this is the opposite of the stereotype of aging, which is old people are crotchety, lonely, depressed. And after about age 50, you know, it's going to be a long, slow decline. And of course, that makes it worse because everyone who's unhappy at age 45 or 50 thinks, well, I'm, this is, this is bad and this is the peak. It only gets worse. So then they get pessimistic as well as disappointed. So it's very important for people to understand that that's not true at all. The stereotype of aging is, is just plain wrong, and this is one of the most robust findings out there. Um, things get better. Emotional satisfaction gets better as you get older. You get better at regulating your emotions. Experience less regret, less stress in any given situation, more positivity. Even true of what you perceive, they put people in brain scanners, and older brains react more to positivity. You know, things like smiley faces and less less to negativity, things like frowning faces.
0: So I tell you right about time also a lot, Jonathan. Time matters. Those were two words you wrote together. It was a sentence, and it was a big one. Talk about why you put those two words together.
3: We imagine that aging is, the passage of time in our lives is, a neutral process, so you know, it's just the clock ticking, it's the background. Or we imagine that aging is a process of slow decline because, of course, you know our bodies deteriorate over time and then eventually we die. So those are the two models of how age affects us in life, but they're both wrong. The big finding of the last, really, it's only been nailed down in the past 10 years or so. It's really brand new stuff. Um, in multiple disciplines, is that the shape of time is U-shaped, and that's the happiness curve. The passage of time tends to reduce our life satisfaction, other things being equal, from early adulthood, you know, when we're about 20, to about midlife. And we'll experience typically a nadir, a bottom to this cycle at around the age of 50. It varies depending on country and, of course individuals are different and then time just when we least expect it to just when we've given up and we think oh my god I'm in for a lifetime of disappointment and gloom time turns around it switches sides and it goes into this reverse cycle of positive feedback where we're feeling better about life and we're positively surprised that we're feeling better because we thought you know we're going to decline into sadness and death and And those two things feed on themselves. So that's the shape of time. And that's what Thomas Cole's paintings are really about. He makes this clear. If we look hard, we see that there's an hourglass is the prominent feature of three of the paintings. So his message is this is what time is going to do to you.
0: And let's talk about that midlife malaise because you said it's often about, well, like Seinfeld's show, nothing. Talk about that.
3: Yeah. We imagine that if we're not feeling good about life, then there must be something wrong with our life, something we've got to change, you know, job, marriage. In my case, it was job. When I started having this fog of disappointment that I couldn't seem to get away from, I started fantasizing about escaping, walking, quitting my job and escaping to some other whole different kind of line of work. I didn't know what. It was, it was just a fantasy, but lots of people experienced that. Well, it turns out human beings are not very good at attributing the causes of our happiness and unhappiness. What I was really doing was flailing around. My rational mind was looking for a way to explain what in fact was going on just because of changes in my brain and because of my age. What I was in fact feeling, this rough rough patch in my 40s, this was a built-in transition. Lots of people go through it. Not everybody, but lots of people. It's totally normal, but it's not about anything. It's just change. One way that we that we have that confirms that is that the same pattern of declining happiness followed by increasing happiness for the bottom in the middle of life has turned up in chimps and orangutans. And there, you know pretty well it's not about anything because they don't have you know careers and and families and marriages and all that. So the problem is the happiness curve, age-related dissatisfaction, as, as I call it, is not really about anything. It's just something that's happening. It's like, you know, what is adolescence about? Well, you know, it's stage, right? It's natural human development. But we make the mistake of thinking it must be about something, so we leave our marriages, we quit our job. For most people, Midlife dissatisfaction, the bottom of the happiness curve is not a crisis. It's the opposite of a crisis. It's just a long, slow slog and we live with it and go on with our lives. It's not, it's not acute depression. It's just a big nuisance. If we misattribute it and we go out and make, you know, big life mistakes based on the false idea that what we really need is to throw all the, the whole pack of cards in the air, quit our job, leave our marriage and go off to Tahiti, well, That becomes midlife crisis. Most people don't have that, but a U-curve turns into a V-curve, a sudden sharp crash, often because we make these mistakes. So it's really important to know, if you're in a midlife slump, it's probably not about you. It may not be about your life. You may need change in midlife, as at any other time of life. Change is often good, but don't be radical. Don't be disruptive. Don't be impulsive. Impulsivity is not your friend at this stage. Plan it carefully. Talk to people. Make sure it's a progressive, sensible change for you.
0: And when we come back, more with author Jonathan Rauch. The book is The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After 50. And if you like what you hear here on Our American Stories, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our free newsletter. And we'll send you the five best stories each week. And this is a story in the end, not only about Jonathan rausch's curve, his happiness curve, and his experience at the bottom of that curve, but all of our lives. And we all know what he's talking about. I think that so many of you are nodding and thinking, aha, that's what this was all about, this journey. When we come back, more with Jonathan Rausch, And thanks always to MyPillow.com. The folks there, well, they they make the best pillows in America. And if you want some real happiness, a good night's sleep will get you there. Go to MyPillow.com and tell them, well, at least enter the promo code STORIES to get their very best specials. That's MyPillow.com. And again, my wife and I use them. We actually fight over whose pillow is whose. And we think we like each other's pillows more than our own. It's very strange. MyPillow.com. Real happiness is a good night's sleep. When we come back, more with author Jonathan Rauch. This is Our American Stories, and we're back with author Jonathan Rauch, whose own midlife unhappiness prompted him to take a deep dive into the science of happiness throughout human life. In writing his book, The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After 50, he discovered that on average, people develop higher life satisfaction later in their life, even as they're getting sick more often and can't do all the things they once did. Jonathan, in your chapter called The Paradox of Aging, we meet a 94-year-old woman named Nora who rates her life as 100% satisfied with everything. Tell us about Nora.
3: Nora um, actually passed away since I wrote those words. She was 94, and she, I don't know if I put this in the book, but she had a cancer diagnosis at the time. And yet there she was saying it was the most fulfilling part of her life ever, even though she had some terrible losses. Her husband had died many years ago, and she'd been single. Um, she'd been the caregiver for her sister who had had Alzheimer's, who had died, and that had been a rough patch. She was very wise, and she said, these things that used to seem like they mattered so much, I'm not using her words, but she said they seem ephemeral now. People later in life feel like they no longer have anything to prove. They feel like they can focus more on the, on the most important things in life, and that's partly because their brains have changed to allow them to do that. And it's, it's very common. There's tons of evidence now, just tons, that what I saw in Nora and other people, I surveyed lots of people for my book and interviewed lots of people, that this is a, a very deep phenomenon. This is, this is really changes in our brains and values as we age that make it easier to be satisfied and easier to be wise.
0: You know, you write, quote, fortunately, the depressive realism of middle age turns out to be, well, unrealistic. Life indeed gets better, much better. Again, this is not what the culture sells us. Old age is like death in the culture.
3: Yeah, one of the reasons I wrote this book is it's all the stuff I'd wish that I could have known when I was 40, and by the time I was 50, I was so pessimistic about the future because I thought at that point, you know, 10 or so years of this fog of disappointment, and part of the reason I was so gloomy about the future is what you just said, you know, the story that our society says as well. It's all downhill from here. If I had just known that if I can just wait this thing out, not make any big mistakes, that it's got a wonderful payoff. It's a transition. It's not midlife crisis. It's, it's midlife transition to a different brain and a different value set that turn out to be more rewarding. I'm textbook. I seem to be like right from Central Casting. My U-curve bottomed out in my late 40s, around the time I lost my parents and actually had some major setbacks in life. And I started feeling like maybe it was turning around by the time I was 51 or 52. I'm 58 now. And of course, you know, life is life, right? There's setbacks, there's disappointments, there's anger and, and all kinds of stuff. And of course, there's politics right now. But despite all that, I also feel gradually like I'm getting more settled. All these voices and fantasies about escape and worthlessness have, have pretty much gone. So that's that's the real story.
0: Some really prominent social and behavior scientist, Jonathan, came to a pretty startling conclusion in 2011. I'm going to quote again from your book. The peak of emotional life may not occur until well into the seventh decade. And you wrote right after that, the seventh decade! Exclamation point! Why that exclamation
3: point? It's so counterintuitive. It's what you just said earlier, Lee. You know, we we just imagine that by the age of seventy, much less you know eighty, that will be in sad decline, and it's it's just not true. The emotional peak of life is much later. And you mentioned earlier that we have this idea that youth is you know it's a time of, of gloriousness and happiness and Well, most of us have been through that period of life. And the reality about our 20s is that that they're a time of extreme emotional volatility and great uncertainty. And that goes away later in life. You become much better at balancing emotions, at experiencing equanimity, meeting the world with a sense of perspective.
0: Let's talk about the happiness curve and its purpose because it's social and it bends toward this thing called wisdom. Again, those ancient philosophers like Aristotle, they were onto something. Talk about Paul. His story was remarkable and universal.
3: Paul is a guy who I met when I was on a speaking trip and he was I was driving around with him. And his story turned out to be a midlife crisis story. It does happen. He was a super motivated high achiever ice climber who wanted to do all the hardest routes in the world and broke both his legs trying to do it and would obsess if he wasn't you know out there on the ice every winter had marriage kids and he just fell apart in his 40s when he put himself back together a big element is that he went out to an indian reservation to do some teaching And saw the poverty and need out there and began to throw himself into that. And that changed his life. Well, from his perspective, he feels like the reservation did this to him. Really, I think the science is more like he did this to him. His brain was not receptive to doing that kind of close, social, connected work when he was younger. Because he was focused on personal ambition. That's how we're wired. But he became, as he aged through this crisis and beyond, he became more oriented toward helping other people and found a deeper level of satisfaction than he ever known before. And one of the things he said to me along the way was that he thought he had a better toolkit for life, which I thought was a great phrase. So I put that in my pocket. And... Was looking at the literature on what's going on behind the happiness curve. Why would evolution want us to have this additional satisfaction later in life? And the word wisdom kept popping up. It turns out there's a science of wisdom. Wisdom is not like some folklore concept from fairy tales. It's a real thing. It's measurable. There are tests for it. There are people looking for it in brain scans. It's not the same as knowledge, expertise, skill, experience, and certainly not the same as intelligence. It has almost zero relationship to how intelligent you are, how wise you are. But wisdom is just what Paul said. It's about having that toolkit for life. So it's, wisdom is rare at any age, young or old, but we're better equipped for wisdom as we get older because wisdom is about the ability to balance competing emotions to synthesize a lot of experience, not to fly off the handle too much, and it's especially about helping navigate complex social situations. We think that's why it exists. Tribes that have wise people tend to do better, and families that have wise people, because wise people help offer good advice about how to cope with stuff.
0: And lastly, Jonathan, talk about faith and religious community. Many of the happiest and most satisfied among us are also people of deep faith. Does that have any relationship to the happiness curve?
3: Faith, I think, is something largely separate. Um, The happiness curve is about the effect of time, but it's important for people to remember, lots of other things affect your well-being in life. You know, for example, your health and the satisfaction you get from your job and the quality of your marriage. And yes, faith is an important element of that. So, on any given day, Lee's or Jonathan's life satisfaction depends on a host of variables, and no one should think that time, the happiness curve, is the only thing going on. It's one of a lot of things going on. So, by all means, faith can increase well-being, and there's a lot of documentary evidence to, to show that that's true. But it's it's kind of a separate thing. It's, it's a good thing. It's an important thing. And I ran across it when I was doing my research. But what we need to remember is it's not the only thing going on. Your age will also affect your happiness, and it will affect your receptivity to faith and to community and stuff like the amount of and quality of volunteering that you're doing, for example, which is important in many faith communities
0: indeed and and I'm going to end with a, a line that I think almost summarizes the book. It's just such a beautiful one time and aging fight happiness in midlife then switch sides talk about that
3: that's it it's what I it's what I just said you know it's time and aging are not the only thing going on It's like you can walk uphill and it's harder or downhill and it's easier, but where you go depends on what direction you set and the terrain and you know but and the distance and the weather. Lots of things go on. But it's very important to know that there is this U-shape to life and that if you're someone who is feeling that, you know, your, your midlife is a grind of disappointment and it seems like it's, it's never going to end and you don't know what to do, for a lot of people, in a lot of cases, what to do is nothing. It's not literally nothing. Reach out to other people. It's, it's better not to bottle this up avoid big mistakes and impulsive decisions of the time we talked about earlier counseling is often a good idea these days there's counselors know all about this and they're not going to tell you you're depressed you need medication off to the, the funny farm so and coaching is a really good thing to do because coaching is about realigning our lives to meet our changing values and that's especially important in middle age because that's what's really going on So all of those things can help, but the most important thing is to understand that what's happening to you is natural, normal, healthy, nothing to be ashamed of, and it goes away. It gets better.
0: And we're speaking with Jonathan Rausch's book, The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After 50. And Jonathan, thanks for joining us.
3: It was great to be here. Thank you.
0: And go to Amazon.com and get The Happiness Curve. It's as good a book as I've read in a very long time. This is Lee Habib, Jonathan Rauch's story, The Story of Human Happiness, here on Our American Stories.